Hello, I'm Ben Williams, Administrator of Science at the Virginia Museum of Natural History. Welcome to the VMNH Cast. I am here today with Dr. Joe Kuyper, our Executive Director here at the Virginia Museum of Natural History, and Dr. Cal Ivanov, our Associate Curator of Recent Invertebrates. So first off, uh, thank you both gentlemen for making the time to talk to me today. No, thank you. I'm glad to be here, Ben. Thank you. Today's uh, topic is the, the intersection of science and pop culture, of forensic entomology and, uh, and Tiger King the Netflix documentary series that came out at the uh, beginning of the pandemic. I guess my first question uh, for the both of you, have either of you ever seen Tiger King on Netflix? No, I have not. I don't know what the heck you're talking about. <laughs> so if there's uh, anyone else out there who, who isn't familiar with Tiger King, this was a Netflix documentary series that uh, came out right at the start of the pandemic. And it was about uh, a number of people who keep large exotic tigers in, in their homes or in refuges. And it particularly followed a fellow named Joe Exotic, uh, who is currently in prison for um, various reasons. But after he went to prison, I believe, uh, his Midwestern large cat refuge was taken over by a fellow named Jeff Lowe. And Jeff Lowe is the, uh, the guy that we're going to be talking about today and how the both of you and the Virginia Museum of Natural History sort of got involved tangentially with uh, the whole Tiger King case. Uh, so I guess my first question for you, and either of you can answer, is you know, understand an attorney from PETA reached out to Cal. And uh, Cal, can you talk a little bit about that? initial reach out and what the attorney wanted to talk to you about. So the case came uh, out of the blue via email from Asher Smith, uh, the director of litigation at PETA, who reached out to, uh, to us in early October 2020 and uh, presented us with uh, a case that involved the death of uh, an exotic animal and that has uh, uh, associated with it some uh, insect evidence. So he was interested uh, to see if we will take on the case. And of course, I have limited experience in, uh, with forensic entomology, so the, the logical thing was to reach out to uh, Dr. Kuiper, who has a vast uh, experience and expertise in forensic entomology, and uh, it didn't take me uh, long to, to convince him that it's an interesting case, and we hopped on it almost immediately. Um, and here's a, a good question for Dr. Kuiper. Can you talk a little bit about what forensic entomology is? I know this is something you have a lot of experience with. Yeah, and Ben, I appreciate the formalities, but I only make people call me Dr. Kuiper, who I either don't like or if they're little kids. Oh, so, well, uh, I'm, I'm glad I'm in neither of those categories. <laughs> not <then>. yet. <laughs> anyway, yeah, so forensic entomology is a field that I've uh, long been associated with, and it's the use of insects uh, uh, to answer questions of interest to the legal system. Now, that's very broad, but the most common way in which we use insects 
in a forensic sense is at uh, uh, death scenes. So normally this is human death under mysterious or suspicious circumstances. And we use the insects and their biology, and these are insects that are specific to decomposing remains, animal remains, including humans. And we use the, the life cycle of the insects in, uh, as essentially a, a measurement of time over the, uh, the death scene. And in many cases, these are gonna be homicides. Um, and so we uh, provide kind of that first look at the timeline. And we've used that, one, to, to help with cases, to kind of bring them to a logical conclusion, but also in certain circumstances, uh, the insect evidence contradicts statements made by suspects uh, at the crime scene, as well as uh, alibis and eyewitness accounts. And, and that uh, leads us into this scenario. So um, I understand that it was a, a young lion, is that right, juvenile lion, um, that was found dead at the property this Midwestern uh, big cat refuge that Lowe was operating. Can you all talk a little bit about sort of what the evidence was that was presented uh, to the both of you? So uh, the only uh, piece of evidence that was provided uh, for us was a necropsy report that was performed uh, by uh, Doctor of Veterinary Medicine at uh, the University of Oklahoma and eyewitness accounts associated with the case. So this case is rather unusual because there was no specimens that were provided to us, nor there were any specimens preserved associated with uh, the deceased animal, which is uh, a case that uh, probably, in my personal experience, never happened, and I don't know if uh, Joe has any cases in which there were no specimens associated. So we had to entirely rely on, again, a necropsy report and some eyewitness accounts. Yeah, it's, it's rare. To, to not have any specimens to work with. Every once in a while, you're asked to review medical records, but then that becomes very limiting. And uh, as Cal is alluding to in this case, there was enough information in the report that we could be useful. So what um, was the claim as far as the explanation presented by the park for how this juvenile lion had died? So based on... Uh previous accounts and uh, reports associated with the care of the, of the four uh, juvenile lions, it was pretty obvious that they were not properly taken care of for quite a while. They were malnourished and possibly mistreated. And uh, the, in this particular case, the animal was uh, found dead on uh, the morning of August 31st, 2020, around nine o'clock. And at that same time, uh, the, the witnesses, uh, Jeffrey Lowe's wife, Lauren, reported that the door to the facility was broken into, alluding to the fact that there was a breaking occurring to the facility that same night. And in addition, after a search uh, involving the local uh, police department, a uh, dart designated to be shot from a rifle was found within the cage where the animal was found dead leading to the fact that most likely the animal was killed during the break-in. And that, uh, I take it, did not sit right with the folks who brought this case to you? Uh, nah, I, I, if, if uh, the, the ability to fabricate a, a crime scene, that is an animal assassination, uh, if the quality of that fabrication is uh, the same quality as the television show, then I'm really glad I haven't watched it. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, so, so again, as I alluded previously, uh, there was already some indication, uh, maybe stemming even from the documentary series, that the animals in the possession of these individuals are not properly taken care of. So that was the first clue. And then, of course, uh, the animal was transported to the nearby University of Oklahoma, where a necropsy was performed, and the report alluded to the fact that there were uh, maggots present on the body, which is not unusual when you have a deceased animal, outdoors especially. So I guess walk me through, you know, y'all got, uh, you didn't receive the specimens, but you got measurements of the maggot specimens, is that right? And along with sort of a time frame, so you knew when these were collected. So sort of walk me through um, how you can use that information from a forensic entomology perspective to determine time of death and that sort of thing. Well, uh, just to clarify, there were like zero specimens collected, uh, and that's not unusual because a lot of people who do um, the necropsy or you know, simply define an animal autopsy, essentially, uh, they, they don't have the knowledge, they don't have the background, or uh, they lack appreciation for the use of uh, things like uh, insects on a, on a body, or in this case, uh, the, the animal carcass. So uh, the report had noted that uh, maggots that were light brown and cylindrical that measured five to ten millimeters so you know I don't know a little more than a quarter inch at most something like that maybe getting close to a half an inch uh, were present and as Cal said that, that's not unusual so but the the thing that's important about that is that uh, these things take a little while to grow right so the life cycle of the insect uh, in particular these maggots are going to be blowflies there is no doubt whatsoever that the maggots are going to belong to the family Califority or the blowflies or the metallic blue and green things that you see buzzing around uh, dumpsters and you know animal carcasses on the side of the road. So they'll move in very quickly. They follow the scent of death that we can't smell but that they can pick up very readily. And they will land on the carcass and start depositing eggs right away. They're high speed. And so we can use that as a tool. Uh, by measuring their growth, so after they lay the eggs, they go through three distinctive stages, what we call instars. So each one of these stages, um, uh, there can be a little bit of overlap in their sizes, but when you start to get up to five to ten millimeters, you don't have a newly hatched maggot, right? And so we have a really good sense of how quickly these things grow. And it's not just how fast they, they grow, it's the temperature at which they grow. So, in other words, uh, me and you, we maintain uh, an internal equilibrium with our temperature at about, you know, 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit. However, maggots can't do that. Insects in general can't do that. They're dependent upon the environment within which they exist. So what happens then is that when you have hotter temperatures, maggots feed faster and grow faster. If it's cooler temperatures, the exact opposite. And so we were able to download from a nearby weather station, the historic hourly data from the time that the animal was transported uh, to, uh, to go back in time uh, based upon those temperatures, and we could begin to nail down uh, using a very simple mathematical model called accumulated degree hour temperatures. We could work backwards through time and estimate the minimum amount of time that that line was lying around dead. What was the, um, I guess, how long had the staff at the uh, animal park said it was dead versus what uh, did y'all determine? So based on eyewitness accounts, uh, 
the animal in question and its three siblings, her three siblings, were last seen sometime in the late afternoon on August 30th, 2020. So that means anywhere between four to six o'clock or so. And then of course the animal was found dead the following morning at approximately nine o'clock. It seems as though that, that may not have been accurate. Well, they're saying that they saw the animal alive about, what, 18, 19 hours prior to when it was discovered dead, right? And um, uh, the funny thing about this case, and, you know, I mean, the, again, this is not unusual. The, the person performing the necropsy noted the maggots, and one thing she did was she went to a textbook on uh, animal uh, necropsies, right? And so it has a section on forensic entomology, has some very broad information, and I hate to put it this way, I'm not trying to be critical here, but... I personally felt that she misinterpreted some of that information and inaccurately reflected it within her report and had said uh, in the report that uh, maggots that are in the 5 to 10 millimeter stage could be as old as the final stage of development, the third instar, and uh, that corresponds with the approximate time of death of the animal being seen in the late afternoon the day before. So, however, 18 hours, 19 hours, 20 hours, something like that, is far too short a period of time to get to that stage of development. The egg itself would normally take around that length of time, just by itself. So already, you know, our radar is going and it's telling us, oh, something's wrong with this, right? So not only did she misinterpret, but it also, uh, it made us look, without even doing any um, calculations with the with the temperature that the maggots were exposed to and the eggs were exposed to, we knew right away that that line was dead longer than 18, 19 hours, maybe even uh, the day or multiple days uh, before uh, the the time of uh, reported death. Yeah, this was the uh, the information you presented to the attorney. So where did it go from there? Well. Um, you, you know, you present that information uh, to the attorneys, and then, you know, don't forget the attorneys themselves, while they were savvy enough to recognize, hey, you know, this information in this report could be pertinent to our argument that the animal was uh, malnourished, not cared for, and didn't die due to this, you know, fancy, elaborate, you know, assassination that was staged or whatever, right? But, you know, that, uh, uh, that they were contending that the animal died due to the neglect. And so it, it's always bad for a suspect when you're caught lying, right, mm -hmm. to the authorities. So, you know, they said that they fed the animals just fine, they treated just fine and stuff like that. But then again, we caught them in this lie that it was seen, the animal was seen healthy and playful just 18, 19 hours before so, um, uh, so again, the attorneys recognize the usefulness of this information, and so what they want to do is they want to get schooled up. So we have to sit down over Zoom, and we, you know, kind of went through the basics of this, how we know what we know. We went through the accumulated degree hour model, which is, you know, it's not a difficult concept, but it's really just adding up hourly uh, uh, temperature uh, until you get to a value that is equivalent to what a maggot needs to transform from one stage to the next and you just work your way back through time. So we got them up to speed on that and then they saw it, they, you know, it, it, it clicked and they're like, okay, let's come up with the argument. And then you sit down and you just go through methodically your argument and they know they want to take this to trial and they know they want you to be smooth in your, in your delivery, right? Because you're going to be talking to an uneducated I shouldn't say uneducated, but a uh, uninitiated audience. You're going to be talking to a judge, maybe a jury, you know. 
So you have to come up with a, with a pitch, essentially, based upon your, your data. So that's what we did. We sat down and rehearsed this. Nice. And uh, that trial, when, when was the trial? All right, so uh, this uh, went to trial on February 2nd, and uh, it was then my job to zoom in and kind of take this rehearsed presentation. And it was challenging because um, when I testify in court, this is all done remotely, when I testify in court, I mean, you got slides, you, can, you have illustrations, you have examples that you can illustrate your particular argument with. Well, I had none of that, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and the funny thing too, and it's just the it's it's just typical of the times where we're relying on things like Zoom. I got one view of the courtroom, and it's somebody I don't know who doesn't seem to really be doing anything, just sitting there, <laughs> and I have all these voices coming at me. So I, I recognized uh, the lawyer from the uh, from people for the ethical treatment of animals. Recognize her voice and stuff like that, but then I'm kind of going through my argument and I'm talking about the flies. Also, this big booming voice comes on, and it was you know like. You know, I don't know, it was like, you know, Poseidon arising from the oceans, right? You know, it's like, it was like, Dr. Kuyper, can you go ahead and explain that a little more closely? We don't know what kind of insects these are. And I'm like, yes, sir, right? And so I went through and did it in more detail and stuff. And, uh, and I didn't know what to expect since I couldn't see anything. You know, I'm used to there being a defense lawyer, so someone jumping in trying to punch holes in your argument. And I just kept waiting for it to come, you know? Because in the courtroom, you can see that. You can see the person just leaning forward, you know, the defense lawyer about to cross-examine you or whatever, but there, there was no visual cue about what was going to happen next. So I just kind of went on. The judge asked a couple more. Well, I, I assumed it was the judge. Like, I didn't even get introduced. I didn't know who this voice was. So I just answered the questions. And I got to the end, and uh, I concluded after the, the, the argument, I said, uh, it is my expert opinion that that lion was already dead uh, when they said that it was alive on the afternoon uh, of the, uh, the the day before it was discovered dead, and uh, that it's even highly likely that it was even dead a day before that, right? So um, uh, with that, uh, amazingly, after all of that, the judge in his big booming voice was like, "Well, Dr. Kuiper, I want to say that you know I've been on the the bench for 39 years and I have never even heard of forensic entomology before. So well done, welcome to Oklahoma." And the cool thing about Zoom, well, maybe not so cool thing, is that, you know, there's always that awkwardness when you're ending a meeting, you mm -hmm. know. Uh, it sounded like he was done with me. So, you know, when you're on a normal Zoom call and everyone's standing there awkwardly <laughs> waving at each other, you don't know if it's it's okay to hit end call and you can get on with your life or something like that. Not this time, man. Mm -hmm. It was just like, I'm done. You know, I hit that nice. end call button and I was out of there. How did, uh, how did this trial end for Mr. Lowe? Well, I wasn't part of the trial, but ultimately we were sent the final uh, report. And as a result, uh, Jeff Lowe is not allowed to house any animals in his possession mo moving forward. And uh, the three siblings, the three remaining lions, are now doing very well. We're taken out of uh, the Greater Windward uh, Exotic Animal Park and moved to a sanctuary near Denver, and they're doing very well. Excellent. Well, that's very good to hear. Having not seen Tiger King, do you all think that anyone should uh, own large cats? No, we, we simply as an individual or even a small facility, we don't have the capabilities of mm -hmm. doing it, or at least properly taking care of these animals. So we have to leave that to the professionals. I was just going to say, I, I, I just, I, I mean, 
If you go to some of the, the large professional zoos and so forth, I understand their breeding programs, these uh, zookeepers are experts and they're highly professional and stuff like that. You know, it's still hard for me to see a large animal kind of, you know, yeah. cooped up, but in these quote-unquote exotic animal parks, I mean, they're just, they're, they're just taking advantage of these poor things and yeah. they just don't have good environments or anything. Imagine, it's, it's, it's hard to take care of a Great Dane. <laughs> In a, in a person's house, let alone an animal that is number of times greater and has much higher demands. Well, the good news is uh, neither of you need to watch Tiger King because that is the exact takeaway from that documentary, uh, that all of these people are out of their minds and should not be keeping these large cats. So, I'll agree with that. Well, well, thank you both very much. Is there anything else, any other questions I, I should have asked? No, uh, again, it's just I just want to mention that... Uh, it was a pleasure being involved with PETA, especially given the outcome of the case, and also involved in a case that is unlike anything else, right? All of a sudden, you have to rely on the word of somebody else and just work back through time to uh, kind of pinpoint the, the, the holes in the statement of these individuals. So, so it, it was really interesting to me. And I had to actually bring that up, you know, uh, that I'm going on a report and I'm assuming somebody, and I think it's a good assumption, someone who's earned a DVM, a doctorate in veterinary medicine, uh, can recognize something as being 5 to 10 millimeters long. In other words, not greatly exaggerating the size, you know, so someone steeped in science should be able to provide an accurate observation, you know, despite, the, again, I'm not being critical of the DVM's misinterpretation of what was in the textbook, because I think the textbook... It really didn't focus on entomology. It was just sort of an aside. And so I, I don't think that uh, that person was really put in a strong position to succeed in terms of making a forensic entomology diagnosis, you know, but yeah. it was what it was. But definitely uh, I agree with Cal that it was interesting, you know, trying to work that deeply into a case simply based upon uh, a submitted report. Yeah. And uh, another takeaway is specimens are important. Mm -hmm. And way more important than just somebody's observation. And possibly, uh, and again, not to be overly critical of uh, veterinary doctors, but when you have these pieces of evidence, may as well just collect a few of them. It will make everybody else's life much easier. Just to, I mean, as widespread as forensic entomology is in the 21st century, it is not universal, right? So there are still in cases of human death where the person performing an autopsy will literally just wash the, the maggots off of the body before performing the autopsy and thus the maggots go down the drain, right? You know, and it just is what it is, you know. Uh, it, it, forensic entomology came into the mainstream a little late compared to things like DNA or even to some more uh, standard traditional methods like looking at uh, fingerprints, footprints, you know, uh, markings on bullets fired from a gun, all these more traditional kind of cop-oriented things, you know, begin to get supplemented heavily by DNA and everyone bought into that right away. Forensic entomology is still not universal. Well, that brings me to another question. Uh, do y'all know how the attorney from PETA knew to come here? Well, we have a long his, history here. His explanation. Rich, we have Dr. Richard Hoffman, you know, spent 30 years here building up an entomology program. That guy was world famous, you know, so we just get to kind of go right on his shoulders, you know. And uh, so I, I think the, the, the long history, you know, and also, you know, uh, I'm not trying to rag on any, you know, other museum, but, you know, we're relatively approachable. You go to a larger museum, 
right? You know, uh, messages can get strewn across uh, a large staff and then it's hard to get a response, you know? That's just the nature of the beast when you got a big staff, you know? Uh, we've got, you know, two full-time entomologists and then, you know, me trying to play entomologist when I'm not pushing paper, you know? So, uh, so you know, I, I think, you know, that, that's, uh, that's a pertinent point as well. Yeah, when of course, Joe, you have uh, some some interesting experiences with forensic entomology from the past that yeah. I, I hope I can uh, lure you back in front of the microphone to talk about soon. All right, well, let's see what happens. Yeah. Well, gentlemen, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Ben. And just to end things in uh, the uh, uh, famous words of my late doctoral advisor, Dr. Ben Foote, he always reminded us that in the end, the maggots get us all. A lovely note to end on. Thank you. And thank you for listening. Thanks also to Carter Bank and Trust, our sponsor for the VMH cast, and also my dear friend Doug Cheatwood for the use of his song Digging Up Dinosaurs and Putting Them Together Again. Thanks for listening. See you next time.